always, I want to start by thanking all of you guys for taking part in this. It's a uh, as we're getting further and further into the quarantine, it's been interesting to see how this group has taken shape. Uh, it's been exciting to have a lot of people step forward. And uh, again, if, if anyone is interested in volunteering at any more level, don't hesitate to jump up to the volunteer here chat and just be like, hey, I'd love to moderate. I'd love to contribute writing, whatever it might be. Uh, today, we are going to be continuing our reading of Anti-Oedipus. We're now in Chapter 2, Section 3, The Connective Synthesis of Production. Do, do we want to talk about uh, the permissions changes we made? Yeah, it's uh, we're going to try a new thing this week. Uh, we are opening things up for everyone to be able to talk, but uh, the last couple times we've done that, uh, we've had a few people who've left their mic fully open. So right now, everyone is very much muted. Uh, if you want to talk, go ahead and say right into the... Uh, Discussion chat live, uh, right up there at the top of the collective discussion. Just be like, hey, I have a point, and someone will come along and uh, make you a uh, special speaker for a short period of time, which will give you full speaking rights and all that fun stuff. We're going to try to keep a little bit of a lid on it. Uh, otherwise, week to week, people become more and more unlocked, and then we start running into 90 people in the chat with everyone unmuted, and it becomes unwieldy. So we're hoping this uh, works a little bit better. Uh, so please do go into the discussion chat, ask a question, make a point. Uh, some mod will come along. Uh, but yes, uh, if you are going to be talking, please mute notifications. Uh, Enzo has been doing a lot of work here, uh, editing things down and uh, getting things ready for the SoundCloud so people can re-listen and, and follow. And we actually have a lot of people who are listening to that. So it's worth uh, trying to be a little bit more professional. At least we hope so. Uh, but with that, uh, we'll go ahead and uh, dive into the connective synthesis of production. We will be kind of able to charge through a lot of this, I think, today, uh, if not the entire section. Uh, I will want to take a handful of moments as we pass through, because a great deal of this is referential of other texts and other things that we are discussing around a lot of stuff. So I want to make sure we give everyone a chance to understand those texts, especially Proust's In Search of Lost Time, which is, I think, exceptionally important to this. Uh, but uh, I'm going to go ahead and uh, kick us off and uh, start reading. Uh, please, uh, again, Make any comments you want in discussion chat. And just before we start, as the French uh, resident, I will be comparing both texts to see if the concepts are used uh, adequately. Yes, uh, this will be a very useful one because uh, I, I, I've never read Proust, uh, let alone in French. And I have, a, I have a lot of questions around how the wording is uh, as we get through this, for sure. So thank you for that, Roger. Um, and yes, Doug, Doug sadly can't be joining us. He's going to be muted because he's got a lot of work and real life, uh, which most of us have stopped caring about long ago. So good luck with real life, Doug. Now to begin. Given the syntheses of the unconscious, the practical problem is that of their use, legitimate or not, and of the conditions that define a use of synthesis as legitimate or not. Take the example of homosexuality. Though it is something more than an example, we noted how, in Proust, the famous pages of Sodom and Gomorrah, Cities of the Plain, interlaced two openly contradictory themes, the fundamental guilt of the accursed races and the radical innocence of flowers, the diagnosis of Oedipal homosexuality with a mother fixation, of a dominant depressive nature and a sadomasochistic guilt, was quickly applied to Proust. 
In a more general way still, some critics were too quick in discovering contradictions, either in order to declare them irreducible, or to resolve them, or to show that they were merely apparent, according to preference. In truth, there are never contradictions, apparent or real, but only degrees of humor. And inasmuch as reading itself has its degrees of humor, from black to white, with which it evaluates the coexisting degrees of what it reads, the sole problem is always one of allocation on a scale of intensities that assigns the position and use of each thing, each being, or each scene. There is this and then that, and let's make do with it. Too bad if it doesn't suit us. Uh, this is, I, I absolutely love this opening, this whole, this whole section. We had, a, I had personally a lot of breakthroughs reading this last night with uh, Mal and uh, Martini. So I'm looking forward to a lot of their opinions on this early stuff. But one of the lines, uh, uh, Mal, I know you really attach to, uh, is the line, uh, in truth, there are never contradictions, apparent or real, but only degrees of humor. Mal? Uh, yeah, I did latch onto it, but because precisely because I have no idea what they mean by it, so I don't really have anything to say. Well, it's it's this would be my my question around this line, and I, I'm going to guess Kent obviously will be able to help us a little bit. But my my question here is when they say in truth there are never contradictions, apparent or real, but only degrees of humor. Are they that is them talking about uh, the, their 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 project that there is absolutely. Uh, there is humor in all things, but there's never actually a literal contradiction. Uh, and Proust specifically, when they talk about Sodom and Gomorrah and they talk about the accursed races, these beast beast people and the radical innocence of flowers is the combination that they're talking about here, that it's not really a contradiction that people are able to be both, people are able to be either, but it's a degree of humor. Uh, what do they mean by humor here? Okay, so... Um, you know, I'm going to take a crack at this, which is that um, the, uh, uh, you know, one person that is interesting to look at is Graham Priest, who is a logician. And he, uh, you know, he believes that um, contradictions are true. So in logic, there's an explosion problem, which is if you, if you have a contradiction anywhere, then anything is provable in logic. And so, um, but, but Graham Priest developed a, a position which is called paraconsistency, in which um, uh, contradictions have to be lived with because the contradictions themselves are true. And, um, and, so, and so, you know, one of the major problems is this problem of contradiction and uh, and so what's brilliant about what they're saying in this sentence here is that we deal with contradictions all the time through humor. I mean, a lot of jokes are uh, just people pointing out the contradictions in in the in life as they're living it. And that in life there can't be any contradictions. What we're talking about ultimately is uh, the various shades of humor from black to white. Uh, which which are uh, an example of the degrees. That's the the line they're talking about here. Yeah. So so the thing is, contradictions normally are things that just stop everything cold in terms of logic. But in life, we're working around them all the time, and the contradictions are just uh, dealt with you know, on a pragmatic uh, basis. 
And and that's something that, you know, uh, I don't see many of the commentaries talking about is that, you know, the uh, Deleuze, Deleuze's work is a lot, a lot of it's motivated by pragmatism. So we could possibly under, connect this to the inclusive disjunction. It's not true or false, one or the other. It is true or false or true again, I guess. Uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the, the point is that, that, you know, true or false. Um, could this also be linked to this general um, perception of like categorizing truths according to like uh, heterosexual versus homosexual, like um, constantly? Hello? Yes, yes. Yeah. So I, I think that the way they're talking about contradictions are, uh, and they get into this uh, very shortly here when they talk about the molar and the molecular, uh, that at the molecular level, there are no contradictions. The, the, mm -hmm. These are where the grades of things exist. At the, at the molar, which are these large concepts, we absolutely are able to see contradictions. But contradictions don't actually exist. They are not Objects, they're not partial objects. I, someone in the chat, uh, Enzo, uh, mentioned Zizek, who talks a lot about symptomatic contradictions, uh, the idea that uh, uh, Jews are both uh, stupid, brutish, as well as brilliant and scheming. Uh, in the old Southern American tradition of racism, uh, blacks are children who are innocent and must be guided by whites but also uh, rapists and sexual predators. Uh, this, these contradictions, uh, they don't show things as irrational. Uh, the problem is that there's lots of small parts that support these sort of molar level distinctions. And it's these contradictions that we're able to see something else going on. And Zizek talks a lot about how this is uh, 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 humor. Uh, jokes can be made in this direction where we, we find those moments. Zizek tells a lot of dirty jokes around this sort of area. Um, and he uses racist jokes as an example as well uh, to talk about that. It's, it's not that we're talking about like an ideology, these molar concepts being irrational, but that the reality is that there is a lot of small little pieces that support these contradictions and that we need to look uh, kind of at that deeper level to understand where the, the reality lies. And I think that's a lot of what they're referring to here. Uh, sorry, like I think I, I cut out. Uh, I was saying something and then my... Oh, sorry, Frank. No, that's okay. Um, so, sorry, what was the, could you repeat the last thing that you said? So I, I can... Yeah, uh, sorry. Uh, so uh, Zizek talks about uh, symptomatic contradictions, that when we talk about these large-scale things people believe and ideas that they have, that you try to look for those, those underlying things that seem to be contradictory. And it's not irrationality that is causing the contradiction. It's... Uh, that there is a lot of underlying things that I think how I would read a lot of what Zizek was through Deleuze's points would be that the molar concept, these these right. large masses, we are able to see distinctions of in the molecular. The molecular, there's a lot of simple little tiny facts that are not necessarily connected, and we place them in these larger molar structures. And uh, in order to be able to know that we're talking about those, Zizek says we need to look for symptomatic contradictions. The examples, my favorite example always is to is anti-Semitism because it's Jewish people are both stupid and brilliant and poor and rich and everything kind of that they need to be at any time. And it's the the molar concept is is rife with contradiction. And 
their point, and a, a lot of this chapter is about finding the, the molar, the person, and the molecular. Yeah, okay. So, so I think that that's, that tends to be where I think they're sitting. And Zizek uses this point of contradictions to talk about where uh, the humor in things are, where we're able to make jokes, and how jokes kind of operate at that level. Uh, and I'm not going to refer specifically to it, but he talks a lot about this in books specifically, The Sublime Object of Ideology. This is... Uh, this is a big focus. I, yeah, I guess I'll just add something um, perhaps marginal to that, like um, because there's this line here where um, Deleuze says, uh, not Deleuze, but Deleuze and Qatari, where they say that um, there's a fixation on depressive nature and guilt uh, that was applied, that was uh, perhaps all too hurriedly applied to Proust. And I guess one of the things about humor and joy for Deleuze is that he kind of, um, he associates any kind of tragic reading of Kafka. Uh, he sort of frowns upon any tragic reading of Kafka and Proust. So there's this line in one of his interviews in Desert Islands where the interviewer, um, where the interviewer says that in Proust and Science, you say that the essence of any great work of art is comic and that it is a misreading to be satisfied with tragic first impressions. And then to that, Deleuze says, um, yes, there can be no tragic work because there is a necessary joy in creation and so on. Uh, and then he says that uh, there is no unhappy creation. Uh, and then he goes on to quote Nietzsche by saying that tragic hero is happy. So I think it kind of ties in with his whole issue with uh, tragedy and then his affinity for Nietzsche because Nietzsche always kind of, um, he sort of um, gave primacy to um, Dionysus over the tragic figure of Christ and, and so on. So I, I like that. Can you, can you post a, a reference to that or the text in chat by chance? Yes. Yes, uh, it's in Desert Islands. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'll do that. I to mention that, you know, in the defining of the, of the desiring machines, it's kind of contradictory that they're both flows and cutting off of flows at the same time. And so uh, one of the ways of getting around that is through indirection rather than directly contradicting those two things being directly uh, interfering with each other, that there's some kind of indirect relationship in the mechanism that allows them to be there together. No, oh, that's, yes. Uh, Varun, you had a thought? Um, yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Um, so continuing on that, I think, on, I think uh, Will posted it on page 151, the very direct quote saying that no one's ever died from self-contradictions and the self-contradictions are what allows systems to run. And now you can almost look at it quite directly as the body without organs, right? The yeah. production. And you can see the body without organs almost restabilizing itself in chaotic events by having its own internal contradictions is what allows the creation of new things to happen in a system. So in yeah, a, no, I, I think that's right. And, and I think that, that, that that's particularly the case here as it relates to kind of a political reading of, of, uh, of this section, particularly as it relates to uh, Guattari and Deleuze's reading of Proust. Well, I guess more Deleuze's, but yeah. I really like, um, not to overhype on Zizek, and I'm going to do that because it's just what I'm most familiar with, but an example of the idea of self-contradiction is what allows system to run that he harps on is the black market in Cuba, uh, that people in Cuba laugh. Of course, we have a black market. It's deeply illegal and not allowed. But what do you need? Because it's the thing underneath <laughs> everything that 
if they didn't have that, the people would actually rebel. If they didn't have this black market, the system couldn't function. And I think there's a lot of systems where that's the... Yeah, reading TNG through Zizek seems like a bad idea. Yeah, doing anything through Zizek is probably a bad idea. But hey, uh, but I think my brain I think, is where my brain is. I think that's fine, particularly here though, because like Zizek is is in uh, in organs without bodies. Uh, Zizek is particularly complementary of these sorts of positions from Deleuze, right? Zizek is receptive to texts like. Um, uh, logic of sense and difference in repetition, and then of course stumbles with his response uh, to Antiedipus. But uh, I, I wanted to add on top of Farine, and maybe this is pedantic, but I noticed something interesting about Deleuze and his rejection of, of the concept of tragedy. It reminded me of a part of um, Deleuze's reading of Foucault of Discipline and Punish, where Deleuze is talking about the joyful. Uh, execution depicted uh, at the beginning of of the text, um, and and I, I think that there is a, sort of an interesting uh, strain of thought coming from Deleuze's interpretation of Kafka and Nietzsche, and and the just the the pure affirmation uh, that that Deleuze wants to see in even some of the most uh, generally perceived grim texts of the twentieth century. All right. I think yeah, one of his uh, sorry. No, no. please. Uh, no. He just has this famous take on Hamlet, um, where he takes the, the 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 quote that time is out of joint, and he kind of uh, analyzes that to say that Hamlet kind of marks that turning point in tragedy, where uh, because we are really we are familiar with tragedy as having like this fixed structure of like okay, we find out about the hero's limitations and then his transgressions and redemption. And there's like this circularity uh, in the movement where time is kind of, it's not exactly static, but it's, it's subordinate to um, the movement. And whereas if you say that time is out of joint, then Deleuze kind of analyzes this hinge that time is, is not simply this hinge that is pinned to movement, uh, but, but through Hamlet's like passivity and his kind of hesitances and so on, he kind of becomes subject to time itself. Like time then takes primacy and that allows for movement and change and, uh, and so on. So it's like, a, yeah, it kind of goes with his whole idea of like um, looking at reality as like more dynamic and emergent and so on. Yeah, I think I think uh, there is a kind of space for for a critique of Aristotelian and Shakespearean tragedy through Deleuze. Um, and I think their reading of, of, of Proust um, is helpful. Yeah, and I think the other thing is also in the context of psychoanalysis is that tragedy is representational, right? It's also ideological, it's, re it's reductive. Uh, and uh, and, and um, yeah, and he's, he's a big fan of Joyce in that sense because, you know, in Finnegan's Wake, there's so much of humor, like there's tragedy, but there's humor and, uh, you can't really reduce anything to like, okay, this is just sad or painful or sorrowful. There's just like a lot of indeterminacy there. So, um, yeah. yeah. I, I, just, I just like to mention that one of the things I like in Zizek is his saying that Zeno's paradoxes are the, uh, the nature of desire. And so, you know, I think that it, that is a really interesting, uh, you know, illustrative example of how paradoxes can be seen as being built into desire. 
Well, and and I mean, to that, I was, it was an example I was going to bring up in about two paragraphs when we start having a talk about uh, some of Proust's writing, because I think, uh, as someone said in chat, I think there are parts of Zizek uh, where he is perfectly in line with this. I still think it's good to have an eye. It's just where my brain works. But I do want to move on to the next chap next paragraph here. Who would like to give it a read? Excellent. Varun, how about you? Will? I, I'd, I'd be happy to read it. All right. <laughs> I just, yeah. Uh... In this regard, it is possible that I'm going to botch this. Glorosa's coarse admonition is prophetic. A lot we care about our grandmother, you little shit. For what does it? Uh, for what does in fact take place in search of lost time? One in the same uh, story with infinite variations. One in the same story with infinite variations. It is clear that the narrator sees nothing, hears nothing, and that he is a body without organs or like a spider poised in its web, observing nothing but responding to the slightest sign, to the slightest vibration by springing on its prey. Everything begins with nebulae, statistical holes whose outlines are blurred, molar or collective formations, compromising singularities, distributed haphazardly, a living room, a group of girls, a landscape. Then, within these nebulae, our collective's sides take shape, series are arranged, persons figure in these series under strange laws of lack, absence, asymmetry, exclusion, non-communication, vice, and guilt. Next, everything becomes blurred again. Everything comes apart. But this time, in a molecular... I, in a, in a molecular and pure multiplicity, where the partial objects, the boxes, the vessels, all have their positive determinations and enter into an aberrant communication following a transversal that runs through the whole work, an immense flow that each partial object produces and cuts again, reproduces and cuts at the same time. More than vice, says Proust, it is madness and its innocence that it is its madness and innocence that disturbs us. If schizophrenia is the universal, the artist is indeed the one who scales the schizophrenic wall and reaches the land of the unknown, where he is no where he no longer begins to any time, any milieu, any school. So there's a lot for us to go over in this uh, paragraph because it becomes very formative. Uh, and again, later on, I think towards uh, almost literally the end of the book, they actually define and set up uh, what a molar is and what molecular means. And like, I think they go into the harder definition, but I think it's worth going over here very quickly, uh, the, the entire setup. Um, so first, uh, just to go over just quick, uh, the definitions around a couple of these things and how they talk about them. Again, we're talking about their core concept of multiplicity uh, and the singular inside of it. The molar is this collective formation, which holds a lot of singularities inside of it. Um, and in the French text, they use, uh, I'm going to pass on to, Roger, can you pronounce it for me? <laughs> which one? Which star? Uh, nebula. Nebula. Uh, nebuleuse. Nebula. Okay. I, I'll let nebuleuse. Uh, they, they are the the miasmatic cloud of all of the part all of the uh, singulars 
that are inside of it. Nebulous is probably fine too, but I did, just wanted to make sure we got the right French word in there. Um, uh, within this, uh, the, as these series become arranged, the persons begin to exist under the strange laws of lack, absence, symmetry, that where we start seeing the dividing lines. And then at the basic level is molecular. The, uh, I have, was chatting with someone who explained it to me uh, in a very, very simple way, you're talking about kind of colors. You have the, the rainbow and the 16 million colors. When you look at it, it's a giant rainbow and everything blends together beautifully. As you start getting in, you're able to start distinguishing yellow is here, blue is here, purple is here. And the lines you're able to generally set up. But at some level, you get to the point where you've got literally the parts that are the absolute partial objects inside of all of that. Uh, and those are the parts that make up all of those things. It's it's a lot of that sort of mentality inside of some larger conceptual boxes. Is that a fair way to put it, uh, Will? Yeah, I would think it it, it relates uh, primarily to the part in the whole too. Um, and I, I would imagine Kent probably has more to say um, about that. But the, I I I think that uh, primarily this relates to. Um, and, and we'll see when we talk about Albertine's, uh, face, uh, this relates to kind of collective movements and what we've already seen in this text before, um, and kind of the concretization of, of these various multiplicities. And honestly, when I say that, it sounds like I'm saying nothing. So <laughs> maybe, maybe I'm struggling with the part of this part of this text as well, um, and still do I've I'd like to mention that, uh, you know, this is just, I mean, I see it as kind of a poetic way of talking about what Simondon calls the pre-individual and the trans-individual. Exactly. Can you, can you go into detail on that? Because Simondon's not in English, so I have no idea. Well, okay, I've only read uh, commentaries, but uh, basically what uh, Simondon is saying is that you have to take into account where individuals come from and their ontogenesis. Mm -hmm. And... But the interesting thing about Simone Dunn is that he says that these pre-individual uh, uh, elements that, that individuals come from are always around, right? And so I think this is what Deleuze is taking to, to heart in, in Anti-Oedipus, is that the, the pre-individual is always there. That's the desiring machines uh, and the uh, made up of partial objects. I see. And, okay. and, and so the, that pre-individual basis is always there, but then it appears as these larger objects that are, that are like nebulae, which are uh, molar and uh, are, are at a kind of more uh, social level and, uh, and appear as persons. I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think it is worth mentioning we, have, we are planning on doing a Simondon reading. Uh, and we have a Simondon channel because I think a lot of us saw this coming and I have no idea. Uh, I've never read anything related. So it's going to be. I will contribute on that. But uh, just to finish on this, uh, the last sentence, they say milieu, which is not a translated term. Um, and milieu is something apparent to the environment, but the environment that includes the individual. So there's no separation between, you know, subject, object. There's no duality there. And when it comes back to Simondon, you know, we talk about ontogenesis, which is the same thing as individuation. So the process of becoming with your surroundings. So basically, the milieu is like the umwelt, if we want. And it's something that actually encompasses 
both uh, the subject and its environment. So it's like a it's an ongoing process of production. It's so a fascinating that, one. It's a, this is it's just such a fascinating concept of breaking this down. I want to read uh, Lou posted from uh, Holland's book, uh, Reading of Anti-Oedipus. Um, I'm just going to read through it. There are several ways of approaching the relations between molar and molecular. One is in connection with the articulation of content and expression. As we have seen, a substance can take liquid form on the molecular level and then get transformed into a crystal on the molar level. Water vapor becomes a snowflake. Notice that molecular and molar are relative terms. When individual snowflakes combine to form a snowdrift or a snowman, it is now the snowflakes that constitute the molecular level, while the snowdrift and snowman are molar. The recourse to statistical probabilities may be what gives rise to the false impression that the difference between molar and molecular is a matter of size, when it is in fact more a matter of perspective. It's actually really worth pointing out because they're about to get into uh, things where the partial objects are uh, size-wise probably as large, if not larger, than the miasmatic. Um, uh, um. Real quick, I think this molar might be pointing back to the last sentence of the first paragraph where they say, the sole problem, which is like the molar problem, is always one of allocation on the scale of intensity that assigns the position and use of each thing, each P or each C. I think that's pointing towards the idea of molar in this paragraph now, that um, scale is in scale of intensity and assigning the position sort of like in the Holland book how they say that it's really about the um, statistical, like the probability or the relative terms. It's relative to the position and use of these terms. Um, but I think that might be pointing to the molar in the second paragraph. Uh, so there's a helpful sentence that sort of helped me understand the molar in this new paragraph. Uh, can I just add something to that? Like, um, there's an example of uh, the sort of relationship between the molar and the molecular. Um, in uh, uh, when when Deleuze talks about Godard's two or three things I know about her, there's this coffee scene where he, I think, he plonks like a sugar cube in the coffee, and uh, Deleuze says something like, um, "So it, there's the sugar cube is like this mass that you can understand as as the molar, and the molecular is like uh, is the liquid." Uh, it's all that is fluid. But then he says that what matters is not that uh, the totality here, it's, it's not, it doesn't matter that there is one, this X is molar and Y is molecular. What matters is that when they come together, they form like this, uh, this sort of state of becoming and transitioning and, and so on, uh, you know, rather than understanding it as, okay, now we have a container with this content in it. It's actually looking at both of them uh, together as a whole. I think it's, it's uh, Sagapi, sorry, Sagapi, um, that's how I'm going to pronounce your name, uh, says it's also a biological interpretation of micro and macro at the, cos at the cosmic level. It's, I, I, again, I think w what we're talking about is statistical variations uh, across a whole thing that break down slowly into persons and then into partial objects. And they, it's worth diving into the next section, but before I do, I want to read a little bit uh, of a preface on this section of Proust uh, in uh, the book that they're discussing, and they've been, they'll be talking about kind of throughout this entire uh, chapter, uh, In Search of Lost Time. Uh, Marcel Proust it basically tells uh, sort of a autobiographical journey through his early life, loves, and all of that. And this one moment uh, 
uh, a Proust scholar actually wrote about, and I think I'm going to just read off uh, two paragraphs so you can get an idea of this semi-autobiographical. Yeah, it's semi, but it's definitely about him um, to read. Uh, it is a terrible thing to be imaginative. When Marcel kisses Albertine in uh, the book, it takes 15 pages and about an hour's reading before he finally makes his move. Even then, he can't resist collapsing into Proustian digression. To begin with, as my mouth began gradually to approach the cheeks, which my eyes had tempted it to kiss, my eyes, in changing position, saw a different pair of cheeks. The throat, studied at closer range, as though through a magnifying glass, showed a coarser grain and a robustness which modified the character of the face. Uh, this, it's a huge, it's, it's a lot to read, the, the main book. But again, to go back to what they're talking about when we move from the molar to the molecular, uh, this entire 15 pages is about the moment that he goes from her as the object of desire, this concept, this idea, to uh, seeing her as a person, and he sees her in many different ways, to seeing the very, very specific parts of her that almost are, uh, that are partial objects and almost nothing. Uh, to continue reading, a few lines later, during which the irresolute reader will be shouting, kiss her, just kiss her, damn you. The object of his affection changes again, quoting from the book. Just as at Baalbek Albertine had often appeared different to me, so now, during this brief passage of my lips toward her cheek, it was ten Albertines that I saw. She was like a goddess with several heads, and whenever I sought to approach one of them, it was replaced by another. And then finally, at the end of the 15 pages, when he closes in, to quote again, Next, my nose, crushed by the collision, no longer perceived any fragrance. And without thereby gaining any clearer idea of the taste of the rose of my desire, I learned from these unpleasant signs that at last I was in the act of kissing Albertine's cheek. Uh, the entire section is 15 pages of him slowly becoming disillusioned until he's unable to even sense the act that he had been desiring. Uh, it is, it is so dense. I tried reading part of it to see if there was more. There's not, there's not. That, that but, really... but I think that's great, right? Like, I think that's exactly the point. The, the, and, and I think that there's, that they're pulling from, uh, Antonin Artaud and the, uh, to have done, uh, with the judgment of God and in one particular way here. And I think it corresponds kind of well to, um, the nature in which Deleuze and Guattari uh, are dealing with Proust, because I think it completely lines up with the the, the paragraph we just read. Well, and and so they're about to get into, and this is this is why I wanted to read it, so that way everyone had, because I had no understanding of Albertine or Proust or any of it, and now, uh, yeah, like the chat is saying, now you can come to me for all your Proustian erotic readings. Um, <laughs> yeah, because that was just the hottest stuff. It's, a, it's the, the neurotic side of Proust very much coming out. But the, the, the paragraph uh, we're leading into about this, I'm going to just read through really quick, and we can get right back to that, Will. Um, Such is the case in an illustrative passage, the first kiss given Albertine. Albertine's face is at first a nebula, barely extracted from the collective of girls. Then her person disengages itself through a series of views that are like distant personalities, with Albertine's face jumping from one plane to another as the narrator's lips draw nearer her, her cheek. At last, within the magnified proximity, everything falls apart like a face drawn in sand. Albertine's face shatters into molecular partial objects. 
while those on the narrator's face rejoined the body without organs, his eyes closed, nostrils pinched shut, and mouth filled. What is more, their entire love tells the same story. From the statistical nebula, from the molar entirety of men-women loves, there emerged the two accursed and guilty series that bear witness to the same castration with two non-superimposable sides, the Sodom series and Gomorrah series, each one excluding the other. Uh, this, this section of the text, the 15 pages, and also the rest of it, is very much about that moment when he almost becomes impotent upon the kiss. He's enjoying the kiss. He's digging into it. And suddenly, because of that kiss and the way it's done, his eyes are closed. His nose is pushed closed against her cheek. He's unable to smell. And his mouth is full uh, with whatever it's full of. Uh, but it's closed. He's not tasting. He's not experiencing the kiss, except at that level that he knows it's happening. Uh, it's, his desire has pushed him past the actual enjoyment of the thing. Uh, it's I. Now that I have that context around this, it's it makes a lot more sense in terms of why they're using it as an example from molar to molecular, because again we go from the concept of the girl and the first kiss uh, all the way to the realities of it, which if you overanalyze, really takes a lot of the enjoyment out of it, <laughs> to say the least. I think they might actually say the opposite, that it's the fantasy of the whole person that takes enjoyment out of it. Ooh. I'm not sure I like that. Because <laughs> that's precisely what's, what's lacking here. That's where the lack comes from, this uh, global person that is kind of imposed upon the uh, molecular desiring machines. Is that what they mean when they say everything falls apart like a face drawn in sand? That, yeah, that... so like you see a sand, a face drawn in the sand, you know, kids put their finger and draw, uh, drew a face or something. You see it clearly, you approach it, but then you just see grain. I think that's what they're going at there. Um, hmm. So, so the, 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 the thing is that the pre-individual and the tra trans-individual is indistinct. And so we're going from from something uh, indistinct, like the girl being among the the collective of other girls, to something more distinct, you know, that you can actually see as your the object of desire. To then, when you get too close, uh, it's uh, uh, becomes everything becomes indistinct again. But this indistinctness is, is primary. Everything at, at bottom is connecting desiring machines. Um, the identification of global and specific persons is the illegitimate use of the connective synthesis. Uh, okay, I just want to mention that, that what this section is all about is, is connecting the desiring machines and the molecular up to the molar. You know, and so there, I mean, basically what we're going to go through is what happens when the desiring machines are, 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 are used at the molar level. Yeah. And they, I, say, I, and they say that that use can be either legitimate or illegitimate. Yeah, that's what I got. I, I, I don't think that to, to, to get to the root of desiring machines that the excavation has to occur at the at the molecular level. I'm, I'm, I, I guess I'm just confused, uh, Mal, to, to exactly what you mean. Like, if you could just explicate, uh, like, just a little bit more. Sorry, what, what was, what's the confusion? Uh, Mal, I, I'm just a little, I, I just need a, a little bit more explanation. On, on, on what part? 
on on uh, why you think particularly the way that it was framed earlier it would would constitute an illegitimate uh, utilization. Um, honestly, because I've read the book before, <laughs> um, and, and and I know that they will ultimately identify the uh, global and specific persons as the illegitimate use of the connective synthesis. I, this, I, is, this is Mal's way of saying I cheated um, and reading <laughs> ahead. But it's, 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 I think it's fair to, to bring in a little bit of that because uh, it is very much, we had, this, we had this talk very quickly yesterday when, when Mal and Martina and I were going over this chapter. And it was like, okay, I'm just, I was just like, save that. So, so Mal, please, if you could get into a little bit, I know it's a sneak preview of kind of what's coming up later in the book, but it's worth mentioning because it really does help, especially with the line when we start talking about uh, the narrator's face rejoins the body without organs. Uh, that, that's such a difficult, uh, to me, a difficult concept. Yeah, so, well, to give a... a huge preview of kind of their value judgments that are sitting behind this analysis here. Um, towards the very end of the book, they'll define the paranoiac or reactionary pull of libidinal investment uh, by the enslavement of production and the desiring machines to the gregarious aggregates, that would be the molar level, that they constitute on a large scale under a given form of power or selective sovereignty. This being in contradistinction to the uh, schizoid pull of libidinal investment, which is revolutionary which is defined by the inverse subordination, that is machines over aggregates and the overthrow of power. So there is the, the aggregates, the, the molar and the molecular are, are both going to be there at all times. It's a question of which is determinant of the other, right? So it's, it's not a problem that there's recognition of Albertine and also of her cheek. It's a problem that the cheek belongs to Albertine rather than being simply a part of her, right? That, that the cheek presupposes the the greater molar aggregate. Does that make sense? It, 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 it does to me. Uh, Kent, you were saying? Well, it seems, yeah, it seems reasonable. I mean, it, it, that seems to be kind of the gist of the whole book, you know, where we're going, is that the, the molecular is given precedence over the molar. So then, uh, where we've read to so far, they haven't really given these value judgments yet. They've, they've hinted at them. Um, but kind of operationally, what they see happening is he's disappointed by the disappearance of the global person. Looks like Enzo has a question. And you're, you're hearing me? Yes. yes. Great. Uh, I was wondering if the um, uh, Sodom series and Gamora series, each one excluding the other, uh, since we're going to talk about later uh, about uh, sexes and sexuality, uh, if these uh, two exclusive non-superimposable series were like linked to uh, the boy and the girl Oedipus and to um, the two uh, boy and girl fantasy in uh, A Child is Being Bitten that we saw on the last sections. I think so. That, that concept of non-superimposable seems uh, awfully specific. Yeah, that's why I was wondering. And I think it's going to be a uh, let's let's dive in. Who wants to read the next uh, paragraph? Because I think we're going to start seeing that stuff uh, pop up pretty quick here. Uh, I will call on someone if no one does volunteer, and you don't want me doing that. Okay, um, so here I go. There we go. 
This is not all, however, since the vegetal theme, the innocence of flowers, brings us yet another message and another code. Everyone is bisexual. Everyone has two sexes, but partitioned, non-communicating. The man is merely the one in whom the male parts, and the woman the one with whom the female parts dominates statistically. So that at the level of elementary combinations, at least two men and two women must be made to intervene to constitute the multiplicity in which transverse communications are established, connections of partial objects and flow. The male part of a man can, communi can communicate with the female part of a woman, but also with the male part of a woman, or with the female part of another man, and yet again with the male part of another man, etc. Here, all guilt ceases. For it cannot clinch on such flowers as these. In contrast to the alternative of the either or exclusion, there is the either or or of the combinations and permutations, where the differences amount to the same without ceasing to be differences. I'm really sorry about my accent. No, no, I, I fully understood all of that. Uh... I'm, I'm going to guess everyone else did too. This is one of my favorite sections of this uh, chapter, maybe, because uh, I, I'm a pretty specifically a gender abolitionist, and I don't know if I've had it put kind of my view on things so clearly and rather poetically um, on why people are the gender they are, or how they happen to be, where it talks very openly about uh, the innocence of flowers and to go over why that's useful, obviously. And, Flowers all have both sex organs, and depending on if they are the receiver or the disseminator of pollen, it kind of determines if they are the uh, male or the female uh, parts of their uh, sex get used. And it's well, a statistical reality. I, I really, I really adore this. On top of that, there's there's the whole um, not just bisexuality, but also innocence of the flowers, where the flowers are reproducing, but they're not fucking right. There's yeah, nothing vulgar not about it. Yeah, it's simply the, the beautiful act of whatever it is. The pure creation, I think they would absolutely say is, uh, again, they talk a lot about that being an absolutely positive force, and it just seems like that's really flowing through this entire section. And uh, the last line uh, of the combinations and permutations where differences amount to the same without ceasing to be differences, uh, which is, I think, a really beautiful way to talk about uh, humanity, <laughs> to be frank. So, so this is this is also a reference to Aristophanes in the Symposium. He tells a myth about uh, uh, the original beings being uh, uh, combinations of men and women glued together, and how they become unstuck, and then they go around searching for each other um, the the rest of their lives. So it's it's a story of how uh, loss and lack comes about that produces desire. It's worth mentioning, Enzo actually has a really great question I'd love to get uh, uh, Kent, Will, Mal, uh, anyone's thoughts on. Uh, gender, as they're talking about it here, does feel exceptionally binary, uh, the way that they're talking about it. I, I, I have a point I can make. So, so this um, Holland talks about this a bit, and the, he says that Deleuze and Guattari's point is that with Oedipal society, you gender is mediated between either the the mother or the father, which is why you have a binary. Because 
because in the nuclear family, you can identify either with the mother or the father, which there's only two of them, and they're the dual genders, you know. So that's how that's how the gender binary is constructed. So, so I'm wondering if you could have gender that isn't edible in this sense. Is the question I think we should ask. So they they will ultimately uh, describe what they call a primitive society, where they're very explicit that Oedipus is not here yet, but we're kind of seeing shadows of it, previews of it, foreshocks. Um, and in this, in in these societies, which they'll uh, draw upon uh, Levi Strauss's um, analysis of of incest taboos, uh, the gender does factor in as a way of managing like marriage debts and alliances, but it is not edible. At least not yet. Interesting. Okay, so, but but how, uh, you know what, you, you, by adding the not yet, I'm going to assume that that is a thing they're going to get into. But they, but they do, but it's, it's important to say that like, that that means that 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 analyses of of other cultures become edipalized. So in that same exact chapter, Mal is 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 alluding to. They discuss how sociologists edipalize communities that otherwise wouldn't be. And this folds in with the discussion about calastres that some of you might remember from like twenty five years ago. What feels like I don't know what feels like the Clinton administration now. <laughs> but yeah, like, so, so it, it, the, the pre-Oedipal, but also Oedipalization, these things operate comparably. Okay. Yeah. I mean that, and that does fit in with the, the Clastres discussion. And, and again, if you haven't listened to that, it is on our SoundCloud. You can listen anytime. Um, because if we're talking about kind of that pre-Oedipal or side-Oedipal or whatever, uh, however you want to call that. Um, I mean, we're, it's, it's the, I mean, the question for me is they're, they're talking here about con conceptually the vegetal theme and uh, everyone is bisexual. Naturally, that would mean that, that we are binary. That there, there is a, the bisexuality. Everyone has two sections, partition, non-communicating. What they're talking about though, is the molar versus molecular here. Statistically across all of that, yes, everyone is bisexual, but at a molecular level, all of us become uh, unique flowers, not to be terrible. Um, is that a fair reading of this? Is everyone, yeah, no, yeah? Yeah, it, it's... It's very strange that they kind of use the concepts of man and woman uncritically here, because we'll see that eventually they say to each their own sex. They they do also seem to be gender abolitionists of a kind. Um, yeah, it's it's really an interesting because uh, it's. I know we were talking last night, and it was like, oh, this sounds essentialist. No, it's wait, it can't be because obviously they're not essentialist in any way. Yeah. Um, but it does have that sort of essence where the. And again, I think I, to go back to, they're talking about this uh, from the position in my mind, and maybe just be because that's where I come from, of that position that uh, gender is at a grand scale, at a molar scale, this statistical reality. And, yeah. and it's, I, it's more statistics than anything, but when we get down to the persons or the partial objects, suddenly all of that becomes different. Wait, and, you're going to like this. I, I think uh, these molecules can be understood to be gendered in as much as gender falls back upon them. 
right? Uh, it, is, it is secondary. Should, should, it characterizes them. I, that's fair because ultimately, when we're talking about things at the molar level, I think we are talking about things falling back on things. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's that's a fair. Serabatsur, uh, for sure. Um, and but I really like the the in contrast to the last line. In contrast to the alternative of the either or exclusions, there is the either or or of combinations and permutations. Um, I like I love that last line. Um, who would like to read the next? I think Freen, we had you up for the next uh, paragraph here. Okay, um, we are statistically or molarly heterosexual, but personally homosexual without knowing it or being fully aware of it. And finally, we are transsexual in an elemental molecular sense. That is why Proust, the first to deny all edipalizing interpretations of his own interpretations, contrasts two kinds of homosexuality, or rather two regions, only one of which is edipal, exclusive, and depressive, the other being anedipal, schizoid, Schizoid included and in, included and inclusive. For some, doubtless, those whose childhoods were timid, the material kind of pleasure they take does not matter, so long as they can relate, relate it to a male countenance. While others whose sensuality is doubtless more violent give their material pleasure certain imperious localizations. The second group would shock most people by their avowals. They live perhaps less exclusively under Saturn's satellite, for in their case, women are not entirely excluded. But those in the second group seek out women who prefer women, women who suggest young men. Indeed, they can take with such women the same pleasure as with a man. For in their relations with women they play, for the women who prefers women, the role of another woman, and at the same time, a woman offers them approximately what they can find in a man. I'm going to step back here and let someone else do a little analysis on this section. Anyone? I'm sure someone's just dying to jump in. All right, we'll give it a shot. Why not? Fuck it. Um, I, I, to go back one paragraph, I think Doug uh, had a fantastic way of, of framing this. And one of the big things is to remember that this book was written 50 some years ago. Um, the, the term bisexual may not mean as we uh, sort of use that term today. Uh, they may be using it in the term of pansexual or uh, whatever it may be, because they kind of didn't have a lot of that terminology back then. It was a it was a different uh, sort of time around things. So maybe they are when they're saying bisexual or they're using any of these terms, they are talking about something that's a little bit more nuanced than simple bisexuality, which we tend to take as a very specific uh, a phrasing now. So I think it's a really fair way to think about it as well, unless someone has a disagreement. Yeah. In one of the comments, Malnor uh, Malulo said the crucial thing about it is that it is pre-gender. So the, the bisexuality would be something that comes before the codification of gender. So it's, yes. the, you know, it's the, the gaze that is possible, the, all the potentials that are there. So that, that would be a way to express it. We, we can only even call it bisexual, kind of in retrospect, having already arrived at two sexes. It, it really pre-exists any notion of sex or gender. So, and in, in, in this chapter, uh, this, this paragraph, um, 
the the opening line i think it's 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 the kind of thing we could probably spend far too much time on we are statistically or molarly heterosexual that is the the large scale miasmatic we the royal we but we are all personally homosexual without knowing it or fully aware of it and finally in our molecular sense we are transsexual i am going to really someone who has please say someone here has done studies in gender studies queer theory something this is it's such a it's a lot that they're saying. I need someone to really uh, break that down for me, please. Anyone? But what what part do you need broken down exactly? Okay, so at a statistical molar level, we are hetero, personally homosexual, uh, without being aware of it, and finally, in our molecular sense, as partial objects, we are transsexual. Uh, how? Like I just please uh, break that down. Well, I think that. Uh... You know, the uh, young psychology is kind of on the same kind of level that they're talking about. And uh, and so, you know, young uh, in in talking about alchemy talks about uh, androgyny as being right. a kind of pre-sexual kind of state, uh, which is ambiguous. So, yeah. When I when I read this, I, I I immediately thought about Jung's discussion of of sexuality. I I think um, we can try taking the paragraph backwards uh, with one of uh, Craig's tricks. Uh, at at the end, they're talking about um, the basic Freudian concept of what's called inversion, which is a a psychoanalytic term for homosexuality, where either you identify with the wrong parent according to your sex, or you desire the wrong parent according to your sex. Maybe both. Um, and it's under this kind of analysis that uh, being trans was lumped in with being homosexual. These were understood to be kind of variants of the same thing, uh, which is part of why they're able to kind of include transsexuality and homosexuality in the same discourse, because that's how psychoanalysis analyzed them. Um, so this idea that in a relation between a man and a woman, the woman might be desiring the woman in a man, and the man might be desiring the man in a woman, or desiring in the woman the woman who desires the woman, right? There's all sorts of—you've uh, got both sides of yourself going on at all times, right? And, and actually Jung, uh, Jung's uh, anima and animus can, can be a way of understanding this. Um, but for Deleuze and Guattari, um, this is just to say that, like, the categorization is an abstraction over all this complexity that exists at the molecular level. We are transsexual in an elemental molecular sense in that we've got kind of the other part within ourselves um, as molecular desiring. Okay. Uh, so at, at a molecular level, when, when we are talking about uh, the moment of the first kiss broken down to where my nose is crushed, but I'm brushing up against a cheek. And the cheek, the partial object, the molecular object, is the thing that I'm at that moment going for, desiring, sexualizing. Uh, that At that point is what we're talking about being transsexual in an elemental molar sense, because we're talking about partial objects desiring partial objects within partial objects. The details of details of details. So I, I struggle to see transsexuality in their use of Proust, 
but maybe we can see it in. Um, I am. I am too. They, but they, I, literally, they link it here, and I'm trying to figure out because he says that's why this is what that is why Proust, the first to denial Oedipalizing interpretations, contrast two kinds of homosexuality, or rather two regions, only one of which is Oedipal. And I'm not seeing my brain well, is not making that connection. So thinking thinking about um, Judge Schraber, right? His mm -hmm. his becoming woman, um, centered around what have been analyzed to be feminine uses of his body or, or feminine aspect of his body or of his experience, right? Uh, the, the, he feels that he has breasts, right? Or, um, you know, whatever sexual images happened, I, I don't know exactly, but it all involves the fantasy of being a woman or, or the reality of being a woman. It, it's not exactly clear where he landed on that. Um, so kind of within these connections with, with God's rays and the spermatozoa and whatever, uh, there were transsexual elements to his experience within, within his own body. Okay. Um, and this is, this is how they understand um, homosexuality to even in other non-psychotic cases to occur, right? Like it's, um, or, or, or a way that it can occur. Um, given these Oedipalized categories of man and woman, the, the molecules that have had manhood fall, upon, fall back upon them can connect to the same gender in another person, um, even if that's not your molar gender. Um, I, I also, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, I, I forget. I'll just add this later. So for me to go back to, um, I'm trying to relate all of these paragraphs to each other because they tend to have that relation. When we're talking about um, that, that last moment, and it's, uh, I'm sorry, I'm focusing so much on the molecular, but that seems to be where they also say that in the molecular, uh, the, the character, Marcel, in the book, uh, in, when, he, when he joins that or sees that, he becomes the... Uh, body without organs, uh, when he's unable to have those uh, setups, is there is we are transsexual in the elemental molecular sense. Uh, here they're talking about us at as partial objects. We are all transsexual as people. We are all homosexual at a personal level, and then molarly because we are humans, mankind. Statistically, we are heterosexual. I, th I think it's it's just the isolation of affects and and of of particular aspects, and and I think Schreber is the the right uh, case to bounce this off of. Okay. Um, later in the text, because that's the great burden if you've you know read Anti Oedipus before, even if you read it like I did, you know, without any understanding of what was going on. Um, later in the text, they discuss the the, the concept of like. Uh, transversing across boundaries. So uh, basically that, that kind of nation states and all these things exist in kind of a, a collective, um, collective kind of delirium, right? So one part on page 85 is uh, we pass uh, from one field to another by crossing thresholds. We never stop migrating. We become other individuals as well as other sexes to and, uh, and departing becomes as easy as being born or dying. And I think uh, part part of of the why kind of um, 
you have to, and I think the 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 interest in in the difficulty of uh, assigning that to, to to Proust is is important here is that I think the difference then is the isolation and the ability to 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 transverse or transcend. Um, so I just yeah that that that's I share that that confusion. Um, yeah, sorry. I, I would just like to um, add something really quickly because I guess the bit about like I was just fixated on the bit where uh, he says that Proust kind of resisted uh, the edipalization of his own interpretations. So um, I was recently reading uh, Deleuze's essay on masochism, which preceded the book, I think. So he kind of mentions how. Uh, in uh, in ma in masochism and the psycho psychoanalytic interpretations of masochism, it's there's always like this, um, like and even in Venus and Furs, like the way it's been interpreted is to sort of see like behind the woman the figure of the the, the paternal figure and so on. So there's always like a very limited uh, way of understanding uh, masochs like sexuality within the rigid frame of uh, psychoanalysis. So there's always like this father figure, this Oedipal uh, figure behind. Whereas for Deleuze, like he he kind of goes into this, into this detailed analysis of Venus and Furs, which perhaps uh, we can cover in the review section tomorrow. But I will just say quickly that for Deleuze, he says um, that actually for Masoch um, and in, uh, in in Venus and Furs and his other world, what we actually see is a coincidence of the maternal and the paternal laws uh, at, the, at the point of castration, as he says. So I think there is something to be explored there. Um, uh, through the masochism text, but which we can um, go into tomorrow, I guess. I think we'll have to. Uh, I'd, I'd love to move on as much as I'd like to stay on this. I think it'd be worth us spending some time in the review. Um, I'm going to find uh, at some point I'll post uh, in the outgoing documents literally where this large quote comes from, which is another uh, a book, uh, Deleuze and Proust uh, book that is out there. Uh, I will find this section. But uh, I'll continue reading just for the time being. We'll just dive through. Uh, the opposition here is between two uses of the connective synthesis, a global and specific use, and a partial and non-specific use. In the first, desire at the same time receives a fixed subject, an ego specified according to a given sex, and complete objects defined as global persons. The complexity and the foundations of such an operation appear more distinctly if we consider the mutual reactions between the different synthesis, syntheses of the unconscious following a given use. It is, first of all, the synthesis of recording that in effect situates on its surface of inscription within the conditions of Oedipus, a definable and differentiable ego in relation to parental images serving as coordinates, mother and father. There we have a triangulation that implies, in its essence, a constituent prohibition, and that conditions the differenti differentiation between persons. Prohibitions of incest with the mother, prohibition against taking the father's place. But a strange sort of reasoning leads one to conclude that, since it is forbidden, that very thing was desired. In reality, global persons, even the very form of persons, do not exist prior to prohibitions that weigh on them and constitute them, any more than they exist prior to the triangulations into which they enter. Desire receives its first complete objects and is forbidden them at one and the same time. Therefore, it is indeed the same Oedipal operation that lays the foundations for the possibility of its own resolution, by way of differentiation of persons in conformity with prohibition as well as the possibility for its own failure of st or stagnation. 
by following by falling into the undifferentiated as the reverse side of the differentiation created by the prohibitions, incest by identification with the father, homosexuality by identification with the mother. The personal material of transgression does not exist prior to the prohibition any more than does the form of persons. Uh, this is, uh, I stopped a few times because when we were reading through this, it's a just an excellent section. Uh, and I think it, it starts to uh, piece a few things together from the previous page, but I want to talk specifically about a line. Was it uh, last night? Was it you, Mal, or, or Martini, who said uh, the line, uh, essentially, this is social conditioning is gaslighting, <laughs> which I kind of like as a concept. I think it was you, Mal. Social conditioning is gaslighting. Yeah. Uh, and the, the definition itself creates or solves problems. Uh, uh, you, someone, you brought up uh, the idea yesterday that it's the same as a World Health Organization or the World Bank when they define poverty. Uh, they happen to define it in a way that means that a lot of people aren't in poverty, who absolutely are by any reasonable person, but they're creating the definition that solves or creates the problem before it even starts. And that's very much uh, to go back to my earlier issues, and I think it's starting to come together. When we're talking here about the Oedipal desires that cause someone to enjoy Oedipal, to take part in sort of that Oedipal story, uh, we're talking about something that happens to them at the same time, the moment that they're given that Oedipal place. Uh, their desire and their prohibition happened at the same moment. One created the other simultaneously. Or, or perhaps more precisely, you know, there's existing desire, right? The, the, the infant suckles the breast without knowing that yet yeah, that that's the mother. Yes. Um, it's the representation which uh, displaces and represses this desire by saying, oh, no, 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 what you're desiring is the mother. So, right. so the desire is already there. It's just being disguised. Hmm. One thing I'd like to mention is this uh, differentiation between global and specific use and partial and non-specific use. I mean, I think they're going into here how the global arises. And what's interesting about that is how the global arises through the, con the relationship between the connected synthesis and the recording synthesis. But but this is, this is kind of like, uh, reminds me of this idea of... Uh, generalization versus the universal. You know, the general has exceptions to it. The universal has no exceptions. And so when you talk about global and specific use, I think that that's the kind of thing they're talking about, is that in the general, there are specific uh, uses that are exceptional as well. Well, and I think they get into that in the next paragraph as well, uh, when they talk a lot about the Oedipal Triangle and uh, displacement in and of itself. Um, would anyone like to read the next paragraph and we can have a better discussion then? Oh, come on. I'll do it. Yay. We can therefore see the property the prohibition has of a displacing itself, since from the start it places desire. Wait, is that the right spot? Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Since from the start it displaces desire. It displaces itself in the sense that the Oedipal inscription does not force its way into the synthesis of recording without reacting on the synthesis of production, 
and profoundly changing the connections of the synthesis by introducing new global persons. These new images of persons are the sister and the spouse after the father and the mother. It has often been remarked, in fact, that the prohibition existed in two forms, the one negative, having to do above all with the mother and imposing differentiation, the other positive, concerning the sister and requiring exchange. I have a moral obligation to take as wife someone other than my sister, and an obligation to keep my sister for someone else. I must give up my sister to a brother-in-law and receive my wife from a father-in-law. And although new stases or relapses are produced at this level, such as new forms of incest and homosexuality, it is certain that the Oedipal Triangle would have no way of transmitting and reproducing itself without the second step. The first step elaborates the form of the triangle, but it is only the second step that ensures the transmission of this figure. I take a woman other than my sister in order to, con in order to constitute the differentiated base of a new triangle whose inverted vertex will be my child, which is called surmounting Oedipus, but reproducing it as well, transmitting it rather than, dying rather than dying all alone, incestuous, homosexual, and a zombie. What a mood. It's a wonderful last line. But, uh, so, <sighs> again, um, I, I think this helped uh, define a little bit more from the previous paragraph, but I want to talk through uh, their use of uh, the phrasing around the triangle that connects to another triangle and the structures, essentially, and how I read this, that uh, the uh, desiring machines actually take place in. It, this seems to me to be a real deep discussion around where these desiring machines and the structure of them take place in relation to each other. Is that a interesting jumping off point for anyone? Come on. Well, I, one of the things that I was thinking about was this is the definition of the uh, the edible three plus one. Yes. In other words, there always has to be another element out there that is part of the exchange related to the edible triangle. And in this case, it's the sister and the spouse. The, uh, the spouse is someone else's sister. So they're really the same element, but they're a different element than the, uh, than the, uh, the edible triangle itself. And they're the part that's in exchange. So without without the exchange, I couldn't have the first triangle would uh, effectively uh, be what too too much to live with, too much to, uh, to take in on its own, because I think uh, again from prior to this, my understanding of Oedipal, the Oedipal triangle was just simply that it existed and didn't need the plus one. Their adding of the plus one is them saying what that the Oedipal triangle always had that. All of these desires, these structures, have to have some positive give and take within it. Yeah, it's the genetic. They're going for the genetic uh, aspect. Where did this triangle come from? Well, it has to come out of kinship exchange of women. I think we can also see this as a kind of another surabassure uh, falling back on moment. Uh, where the second triangle is created by uh, uh, the, uh, the, the Oedipus complex falling back on uh, the desiring production and uh, creating the second productive triangle with the um, uh, production of production, conjunctive synthesis, uh, sorry, uh, connective synthesis. Another point that's worth making uh, is that, you know, in matriarchy, it's a different system. 
And so the, 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 what we call the Oedipal Triangle in matriarchy would be completely different because uh, in matriarchy, the women never leave home and the men come to visit. And it's really the uncle who acts as the father. I, I, I want to go back. The, the concept of the, the self-replicating triangle, the, the structure of it, uh, feels like, uh, to go back to the, the idea of the body without organs and how it falls back on things, uh, the Oedipal Triangle, because it has the plus one, is able to replicate itself. It replicates itself by, at some point, I get a wife. Uh, I know I have my issues with my mom and my dad, but I get my wife. We have a child. At that point, I have now become the father in a new triangle that is replicating itself again. And it continues to go on and on and on and on and on. Uh, that becomes ultimately the recording surface that is on the body without organs. That said, that again, a lot of what they're talking about here is when we talk about the the, the replication. A, a difference in repetition comes to mind sort of throughout this entire section. A lot of the stuff that they talked about, uh, passive synthesis and active synthesis, feels like it connects a lot to this, but someone who's probably read that more recently than me can talk to that and see if I'm an idiot, which is possible. But it just feels that they're talking about these edible triangles that transmit and reproduce themselves, but without the second step, they could not. Uh, I take a woman other than my sister in order to constitute the differentiated base of a new triangle, whose inverted vertex will be my child, which is called surmounting Oedipus, but I'm also reproducing it transmitting it rather than dying all alone, incestuous, homosexual, and a zombie. Because I'm living outside of, uh, anytime I'm not playing inside of Oedipus, I'm living outside of the uh, uh, body without organs. I'm, well, I'm and doing... those, those are all the exceptions. Yes. Um, uh, in terms of difference in repetition, you know, the, the, the kind of whole point of difference in repetition is differentiating external difference from internal difference, and also internal relations from Hegel. And so, um, and so the, the, you know, one of the things that you could think about desiring machines is that that, that is a, a way of talking about internal differences. Mm. That, and, and as different from these external differences that are imposed upon us by society, like the Oedipal Triangle. And the Oedipal Triangle is imposed upon us uh, the way things have always been. The self-replicating stories and mythologies that we exist within are given to us in that moment. And when the desire is told to us uh, through prohibition, you can't fuck your mom, you, you can't replace your dad, you've got to play your part. In that moment, the desire is also created to do those things and to then replicate it by taking someone else's sister and then being a mom and a dad, and then having a kid and starting it all over again, basically. And then, and then when when they talk about um, being both male and female inside, that's more like Hegel's internal relations. Hmm. So you know, uh, in difference and repetition, he's trying to go beyond Freud's, uh, sorry, uh, beyond Hegel's idea of internal relations by saying there's something deeper, which are these internal. Uh, internal differences that you know are playing out within the desiring machines and within the trans-individual trans socius. So we have these structures around us, uh, like the Oedipal Triangle, that become self-replicating and ultimately make up this and are done on behalf of the socius or as part of it. 
um, that we're part of, that, that we are propagating, but we have all of these other subparts that are pushing us to surmounting Oedipus. And like, this is where I'm starting to find the falling apart moment. I'm trying to, and maybe it's, it gets answered. I mean, it does get answered in the rest of this. I'm trying to avoid discussing anything else in the rest of the chapter, but we should just continue and trudge along. Uh, Varun, would you like to give the next section a little read? Uh, yeah, sure. Thus, the parental or familiar use of synthesis of recording extends into the conjugal or alliance use of the connective synthesis of production. A regime for pairing of people replaces the connection of partial objects. On the whole, connections of organ machines suited to desiring production give way to pairing of people under the rules of familial reproduction. Partial objects are not to seem to be taken from people, rather from their non-personal flows that pass from one person to another. The reason is that persons are derived from abstract quantities, instead of from flows. Instead of a connective appropriation, partial objects become the possessions of a person, and when required, the property of another person. Just as he draws upon centuries of scholastic reflection in defining God as the principle of the disjunctive syllogism, Kant draws upon centuries of Roman judicial reflection when he defines marriage as, as the tie that makes a person the owner of the sexual organs of another person. One need only consult a religious manual of sexual casualty to see the restrictions the organ desire regime connections remain tolerate within the regime for the bearing of people, which legitimately which legally determines what may be appropriated from the body of the wife. So this uh, chapter is is passing on and continuing to have the discussion around uh, the synthesis of recording, extending to conjugal use, and the discussion of kind of how genitals play into the story, uh, which I, uh, I, I I like the sort of visual idea of uh, what Kant says here that. Uh, legally determined what may be expropriated from the body of the wife seems like a very harsh uh, way to discuss, but a, pr a proper one, I suppose, to discuss marriage and how that is uh, treated in a lot of this. Uh, does anyone have any dissections of this or thoughts on this section before we move? I found it interesting that this was the first time he was quite directly talking about Kant. There's one way to read the three syntheses is to say that uh, Connective synthesis is how Kant understands the synthesis of the world. Um, the conjunctive synthesis is how Kant understands the synthesis of the self. And the disjunctive syllogism is how Kant understands God, or I guess Simon Don considered individuation. Okay. And, and just to mention what that is, is that those are the transcendental um, what are they called? Transcendental ideals, you know the, the 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 you know the soul, the world, and God. And basically, in Kant, he's saying that uh, you know the way that the coherence occurs between the soul and the world is through the intervention of God. Say that one more time for me, Kent. So, yes. so there's there's three in Kant. There's three transcendental ideals, I think they're called. And, and, and th those are things that you cannot know. 
and and so the, uh, the the three things are the soul and the world and God. And the idea is that the the you know the soul, which is you know something beyond even the transcendental apperception, um, is uh, you know it's unknowable. And then the noumena, which is the transcendental object in the world, is unknowable. And then there's this connection between them behind the scenes, you know, Deus uh, ex machina, where God makes makes it so that these two unknowables can relate to each other to give us coherent experience. And I think I think what was just said about the connective, conjunctive, and disjunctive being the world and the self and God. I mean, that's a that's that's a pretty interesting idea. I mean, I, I like that idea. Well, and I mean, it ends with them making a bit of a wry joke. Uh, one need only consult the religious manual of sexual casuistry. I'm never going to pronounce that right. Casuistry. Uh, basically, uh, read what all the religious people have written about how easy it is to expropriate women's organs for the man. It, 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 very, it, it feels like almost a casual joke about how shitty uh, these sort of uh, religious use of everything has been around a lot of these relationships and how these things get defined. And when they talk about the alliance use of the connective synthesis of production, the, the re reproduction, the way that people join, uh, to, to see the problem of that, basically how quickly we move from the people to the parts and how the parts become owned by other people. Yeah, I think there's one good line there. He talks about I forget what it was, but he was essentially talking about how partial objects now seem to be taken from people rather than from their non-personal flows that pass from yes. one to another. Um, I, I really like that line because you, you could just read the first chapter of Antiedipus describing the unconscious, right? All this happens, at, all this desire and production happens at the pre-individual level. So what they're saying, things like Oedipus, right? Um they go and superimpose on top of all of this sort of magic that's happening behind it. Yeah, well, I mean, and they, they make, uh, again, I think they have a little bit more wry, a little sardonic language in here when they talk about uh, the reason for that is that people, the persons are derived from abstract quantities instead of flows. Instead of connective appropriation, partial objects become the possessions of a person. Uh, the reality is uh, the, the parts, the molecular parts of a person are their parts. That's, that's just part of them. But we've broken them apart to the point where they are possessions. And that is, seems to be their sort of uh, sardonic thing that they're, they're mocking here is the concept that any of these parts are things that can be taken or given to other people that instead of just parts of the person and the person being parts of the molar, uh, ultimately. Because so, I was oh, sorry. Sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, you. I, I was just going to mention mention that in Kant, there's uh, the the difference between natural law and rational law, and natural law is the taking possession of the earth, and so for Kant, the 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 main thing that causes natural law, which is taking possession of the earth, is um, the the fact that it's finite. And so there's only a finite earth there. And so private property and the taking possession of the things of the earth is that that's natural law. And that occurs 
prior to the arising of uh, rational law. And then rational law comes on top of that and tries to make sense of the uh, just the, the raw appropriation of resources that occurred prior to the uh, arising of law. Well, and, and they get into that. I'm going to uh, start reading the next chapter, next uh, paragraph, because they get into this a lot throughout the rest of this. We might as well just start charging through because a lot of this is going to answer. Uh, clearer still, the difference in regime becomes apparent each time a society permits an infantile stage of sexual promiscuity to subsist, where everything is permitted until the age when the young man in turn submits to the principle of pairing that regulates the social production of children. It is true that the connections of desiring production were found to comply with the binary rule, and we have even seen that a third term uh, that we have even seen that a third term intervened in its binarity. The body without organs that reinjects producing into the product extends the connections of machines and serves as a surface of recording. But here, no biunivocal process is in fact produced that would fit production into the mold of representatives. Fact produced that would, uh, sorry, uh, representatives. No triangulation appears at this level that would refer the objects of desire to global persons or desire to a specific object. The only subject is desire itself on the body without organs, inasmuch as it machines partial objects and flows, selecting and cutting the one with the other, passing from one body to another, following connections and appropriations that each time destroy the fact the factitious unity of a possessive or proprietary ego, an Oedipal sexuality. Uh, the, fuck, this is such a fun chapter. <laughs> uh, but the opening of this, how, I, how I'm reading it, is they talk about uh, the, you can see this basically in uh, a lot of cultures, and there's a lot of cultures that do this, uh, up until the time when you are a man and need to take a wife, have children, you're very free to do kind of whatever you want and enjoy yourself. So your wild oats, I suppose, would be the term that would be uh, most commonly used for that, at least in the West. Uh, and then at that moment, the man in turn submits to the principle of pairing that regulates social production of children. This is this all together is ultimately coming back on the body without organs. This is now the recording process and all of that. Hmm? Well, you know, in patriarchy, the key thing is knowing which children are your own. And so that's what the taboos are all about. Right. Well, I mean, and again, it's, they, they get into the idea here that when, um, Sorry, to, to go back and reread. We've even seen that a third term intervened in this binarity, the body without organs that reinjects producing into the product, extends the connections of machines and serves as the surface of recording. That feels like they're referring to what you're talking about there, the Freudian concept behind all of that. No? Because, they, again, yeah, the sure. organs is the, the recording surface, the, the way things have been, the, the essence that is driving us at a, at a large scale inside of whatever socius we happen to be in, the, the production of it all. Uh, the pe people around us now who have conversations and talk about how we need to have a nice, healthy nuclear family for the economy to keep going. I don't have to point you at Ben Shapiro and all of the the trads who have these conversations around how the family needs to be its own unit, people need to be its own unit in order to have everything continue to push forward.
It feels like they're referring directly to that. Am I off here? Well, it, seem, it seems like this third term of the body without organs is that what's happening is that the, when the taboos come into place, you are, you are kind of like, rather than being a nebulae that's blurred, you're brought within your body and you have to discipline, you know, kind of in Foucault's way, discipline your own body. Okay. Hmm. I'm having more of a trouble understanding that. But I think, uh, again, this, this entire section is, uh, we're going to end up spending a lot of time in our review tomorrow. We have about four paragraphs left. Uh, would anyone want to jump into the next one so we can uh, get through this and have a little bit more time for a discussion to finish up? I'll start naming people. I'll keep reading. That sounds great to me. Uh, the triangle takes form in the parental use and reproduces itself in the conjugal use. We do not yet know what forces bring about this triangulation that interferes with the recording of desire in order to transform all its productive connections, but we are able at least to follow abstractly the manner in which these forces proceed. We are told that partial objects are caught up in an intuition of precocious totality, just as the ego is caught up in an intuition of unity that precedes its fulfillment. Even in Melanie Klein, the schizoid partial object is related to a whole that prepares for the advent of the complete object in the depressive phase. It is clear that such a totality unity is posited only in terms of a certain mode of absence, as that which partial objects and subjects of desire lack. Consequently, everything is played out from the start. Everywhere we encounter the analytic process that consists in extrapolating a transcendent and common something but that is a common universal for the sole purpose of introducing lack into desire in situating and specifying persons and an ego under one aspect or another of its absence and imposing an exclusive direction on the disjunction of the sexes. I know some of these words. Yeah, I just think generally, uh, you know, what we're talking about is coming up to the point where you have an individual as a person, you know, as a, with their own personality that is isolated. And basically, they're tracking that process and talking about how you become a, to a totality and a unity. And that, like, like for instance, the, the relationship between the uh, general economy and the restricted economy is that the restricted economy is a total, is total and unified, whereas the, the uh, general economy is detotalized and disunified. So I'm going to read a few things from the chat that I think might uh, lead towards this. Uh, Mal, uh, Mal has decided to just type and not talk. So I'm just going to read off a few things Mal's saying, and maybe you can join us and tell us what you mean. Uh, it may be another illegitimate use of another synthesis, the parental or familial use of the synthesis of recording. Uh, in response, though, Enzo says, maybe it's dumb. I don't think this is dumb. But I thought there was a kind of first repression that creates territories like the self and Oedipus, so the connective synthesis is used as illegitimate and creates other territories. I actually think that may be a lot of what they're talking about here, at least as I've read this uh, section, is when we talk about the three plus one, the triangle, that becomes self-replicating, the three plus one. It's not so much that we're talking about the triangle itself, which is the three. Uh, 
it's it's much more that the three plus one means that it becomes a self-replicating triangle that in that writing itself that recording of itself on the uh that that recording uh on the on the body without organs becomes self-replicating in a way that is ongoing and i think that is a lot of what they're talking about here so when we have a repression or we have a desire or a thing that is created and it has that plus one that that secondary sort of rep self-replicating behavior it becomes a territory that becomes self-replicating and recording itself on the body without organs this is that recording process it's how i'm reading a lot of this sort of section when they talk about the lack and all of these things that are adding that plus one that cause things to be self-replicating. Is that a fair reading there, Mal? Um, sorry, part of the reason I was typing was because I was a little bit sidetracked. So I'd like to mention here that the universal, um, you know, is mentioned here. They're talking about the universal rather than the general. So we've been talking about the general with its exceptions before. And so now the taboo is becoming, is, is made universal. And when it's made universal, exceptions are not allowed. And that's what introduces lack. Because there's, there's just places where the universal does not apply, even though it's forced upon everyone as a taboo. And so I thought the, I thought the interesting sentence here was, that uh, when it's talked about, everything is played out from the start. Everywhere we encounter the analytic process that consists in extrapolating a transcendent, a common something, but that, but that is a common universal for the sole purpose of introducing lack into desire. Yeah, and, and I would say that, that that occurs at the level of recording. That's not an operation of the synthesis of connection of, of production, but rather the disjunctive synthesis. So to respond directly to, to what Enzo is asking, um, there are multiple syntheses at play here, and some of the, there may be more than one illegitimate use of syntheses at play. In fact, uh, Holland, in his introduction to schizoanalysis, found it more useful to present these in another order precisely because what we're talking about here depends already on some uh, questionable uses of the synthesis of recording. And I, I think that might be what's getting Enzo uh, tripped up. Um, I, I would say that the kind of positions in the Oedipal Triangle are not a product of the connective synthesis. They're a product, they product of the disjunctive synthesis. But they fall back on the connective synthesis and kind of restructure it so that we're now connecting um, rather than object to object, we're connecting um, person to person through mediation of object. How does that connect back, Mel, to that statement previously where they were saying it, the one becomes oedipalized sort of through the, not through the synthesis of recording, but in the process of production itself? Or what, what was that line we had just like a paragraph or two earlier? I don't know what line. Uh, I'm going to look for it. Sorry. I think the point is that the body without organs is the individual. And, and what we're talking about here is, is uh, producing the individual and trapping them within their body. And, you know, the, the, the Oedipal triangles and its reproduction does that and, uh, and then produces 
a transcendent in the process, which is this, this lack that's injected into desire. So the, the body without organs definitely operates at multiple levels, right? There's um, each person has at least one body without organs, right? We might say that we are a body without organs with then organs attached. <laughs> but there's also kind of the social body without organs, the socius. They don't always differentiate between these. That's a good point. That's a point. So for example, body without organs is the group. The group, like the book, the book would be a body without organ as well. So it could be multiple, and it's always inscribed into a larger assemblage, or and includes smaller assemblages as well. Yeah, exactly. So, like, while each of us is a body without organs, um, that's it, it. It is not synonymous with person. Well, and then in in uh, in Oedipus, you know, in the play. You know, the body without organs is the is the the bodies within the family that the the various uh, uh, you know events of violence get uh, inscribed upon. You know, the father is killed. You know, the uh, Oedipus has sexual relations with his mother, and then Oedipus puts out his eyes. Each one of those bodies within the family are inscribed with violence. Yeah, and actually looking at the um, act of incest, that's that very act is kind of crossing the boundary from one territory to another, right? It's it's um, breaking down the disjunctive synthesis, which is supposed to prevent exactly this. Um, so this would be occurring on, on a single body, the body of the socius, uh, rather than, you know, a juxtaposition of two bodies or anything like that. Yeah, I think that the, the you know the reason this is hard is that it's um, challenging, you know, what's current within our society. We have a very individualistic society, and so we have enforced within our society the identity between the person and their body as an individual. And so other other cultures don't have that. You know, like in Japan, they have the EA, which is made up of four people. And that is, that is the, the, uh, the body without organs within that society. And the reason you know that is because if someone does something wrong, uh, the authorities come in and kill all four of those people. They don't just kill one person. Whereas in our society, one person is incarcerated. One person is killed. Uh, so non-manifest uh, brings up a point in the, in the chat. I think in this paragraph, they're talking about an epistemological use of the synthesis, i.e. the explanations that psychoanalysis gives, and they're explaining why that use is illegitimate. And I, I think that's roughly right. They're, they're trying to kind of interrogate things according to imminent criteria. It's, it's a very Kantian project in that sense. Yes, to me, this, uh, this part really uh, made it clear why classical uh, psychoanalysis needed uh, to be idealist and uh, use transcendent objects, because on a materialistic point of view, you can't base your theory of desire on lack. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. And they, I think they uh, continue the—I mean, it's, it's a critique of uh, the explanation the psychoanalysis gives. I think I, I'm with non-manifest on that, but I think in the next uh, paragraph, they actually get further into the critique. And Winterice, uh, did you want to give that a read? 
Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Such is the case in Freud, for Oedipus, for castration, for the second phase of the fantasy, a child is beaten, is being beaten. Or again, for the famous latency period where the analytical mystification culminates, this common, transcendent, absent something will be called phallus or law in order to designate, quote unquote, the signifier that distributes the effects of meaning throughout the chain and produces exclusions there, once the Oedipalizing interpretations of Lacanism. This signifier acts as the formal cause of the triangulation. That is to say, makes both possible, makes possible both the form of the triangle and its reproduction. Oedipus has as its formula three plus one. The one of the transcendent phallus, without which the terms considered would not take it the form of the triangle. It is, as, it is as if the so-called signifying chain made up of elements that are themselves non-signifying, of polyvocal writing, the detachable fragments were the object of a special treatment, a crushing operation that extracted a detached object from the chain, a despotic signifier from whose law the entire chain seems to consequently be, seems consequently to be suspended, each link triangulated. There we have the, a curious paralogism implying a transcendent use of the synthesis of the unconscious. We pass from, the, from detachable partial objects to the detached, complete object from which global persons derive by an assigning of lack. For example, in the capitalist code and its trinitary expression, money as detachable chain is converted into capital as detached object, which exists only in the fetishist view of stocks and banks. Thank you so much for reading that. It's a, by the way, I love the echo. I'm sure uh, it's going to be a wonderful time for Enzo, but I really, uh, it was kind of nice, actually. I kind of like the unique. Um, so, so the, um, what's, what's interesting here it, to me is the, um, the fact that the, the, you know, you had three plus one where the one was the sister wife. And now that is trans, that one is transformed into the phallus as a trans, uh, a master signifier. And so it's interesting how they're showing a structural transformation that's occurring around the, uh, you know, the Oedipal triangle. And, and I think, um, so, so all of this, is this worth reading completely in the way that non-manifest brought up that this is ultimately a critique of the Freudian concept? Because they keep coming back to lack, which we have uh, in earlier sections talked about simply not existing, or am I not reading that right? Well, so so that... lack, lack exists, but only as a counter effect. Say that, say that in a different way for me. Uh, Lack is a secondary phenomenon that uh, occurs as a result of these illegitimate uses of these syntheses. It's an apparent objective movement is, is one of the phrases they like to use. Kind of, so they're uh, drawing a little bit upon Marx here, where commodity fetishism is on the one hand like a total fiction, on the other hand like it's a fiction that is actually at play in the world. 
Right. Okay. It's uh, lack is real in the sense of all the other things as they've talked about earlier being real. It's it's a it's an actual it's an actuality. Yeah. But but it's being produced by the this edification. Okay. Understood. So in patriarchy. I mean, I think we're we're always talking about the Oedipal, you know, in this book because that's what they're talking about. But but you know, we need to relate that to how patriarchy works in general uh, to give it more, the meaning that it deserves. Yeah, I, I think um, in critical use, we we can understand Oedipus to be basically describing how patriarchy functions. Yes. So this this is describing at that level. Okay. Is it, is that really what this entire chapter is ultimately about? Then about how patriarchy functions and works inside of the three plus one, this extended phallic object. Is that what this this section is about? No. No. Well, it's a, yeah. It's about how you produce these molar objects out of the desiring machines, and the molar objects take on this structural uh, configuration, which which is, you know, which then produces transcendent objects and lacks, and you know, has all of these side effects that are negative. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of unpacking on the one hand the things psychoanalysis got wrong, but not because, not in the sense that these things don't actually happen, Oedipus exists, but rather in the sense that this isn't analytical bedrock. This is um, an ideological structure, a, a social structure, a structure of conditioning and repression that psychoanalysis failed to get underneath of. They, they've described it internally, but didn't step back and see what props it up. Well, I want to read a comment by Non-Manifest uh, real quick. Uh, they argue that psychoanalysis commits a paralogism, an error of logic, by treating detachable partial objects as detached complete objects, the phallus, passing from an imminent use of the synthesis to an illegitimate transcendent one. Yeah, that's very good. That's, that's really exactly, that's exactly right. That's fantastic. Everyone give that a star so it shows up in our best of on the server. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I And with that, I think uh, that is, we are going to continue reading. Um, the next section, Mal, uh, Mal, do you want to give it a shot? Uh, no, I'm no. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I right. please do. We're on the same is true. Is that it? The same is true. Yeah, okay. Um, the same is true of the Oedipal Code. The libido as energy of selection and detachment is converted into the phallus as detached object, the latter existing only in the transcendent form of stock and lack, something common and absent that is just as lacking in men as in women. It is this conversion that makes the whole of sexuality shift onto the Oedipal framework. Into, sorry. This projection of all the breaks flows onto the same... Uh, mythical locale, and all the non-signifying signs into the same major signifier. The effective triangulation makes it possible to assign sexuality to one of the sexes. The partial objects have lost nothing of their virulence, virulence, crap, virulence and eff efficacy. Yet the reference to the penis gives its full meaning to castration. Through it, all the external experiences linked to deprivation, to frustration, to the lack of partial objects take on meaning after the fact. All previous history is recast in a new version in the light of castration.
So, so I, I just like to mention that uh, you know, if you want to know whether this is real or not, all you have to go back, all you have to do is go back to the myth of Osiris from Egypt, <clears throat> which is written all over the tombs in Egypt, and uh, and and you'll see that that you know this whole castration motif is a uh, important thing, you know, from a long time ago. Well, it's it's it comes through everything. It's it's a it's a long, long standing. It's one of the reasons that the phallic object became such a focus over the last two thousand years in everything leading up to psychoanalysis. It's not some unique thing. The the concept of castration has been around, but it's a it's a we've got two paragraphs, and I'm really dying to get through this in the last next five to ten minutes, so we can try to finish up on time. Uh, so I'm going to push us forward, and I'm going to start reading the next section, and then hopefully we can make it through before everyone bounces. Um, to continue, that is indeed what disturbs us, this recasting of history and this lack attributed to partial objects. And how could partial objects not have lost their virulence and ef efficacy once they have been introduced into the use of a synthesis that remains fundamentally illegitimate with regard to them? That's uh, going back to the wonderful comment by Non-Manifest. We do not deny that there is an Oedipal sexuality, an Oedipal heterosexuality and homosexuality, an Oedipal castration, as well as complete objects, global images, and specific egos. We deny that these are productions of the unconscious. What is more, castration and Oedipalization beget a basic illusion that makes us believe that real desiring production is answerable to higher formations that integrate it, subject it to transcendent laws, and make it serve a higher social and cultural production. There then appears a kind of unsticking of the social field with regard to the production of desire, in whose name all resignations are justified in advance. Psychoanalysis, at the most concrete level of therapy, reinforces this apparent movement with its combined forces. Psychoanalysis itself ensures this conversion of the unconscious. In what it calls the pre-Oedipal, it sees a stage that must be surmounted in the direction of an evolutive integration toward the depressive position under the reign of the complete object, or organized in the direction of structural integration toward the position of a despotic signifier under the reign of the phallus. The aptitude for conflict of which Freud spoke, the qualitative opposition between homosexuality and heterosexuality, is in fact a consequence of Oedipus. Far from being an obstacle to treatment encountered from without, it is a product of Oedipalization and a counter-effect of the treatment that reinforces it. Again, to go back to the point we had earlier in this that Mal made so well, uh, essentially, all of this is gaslighting. Is psychoanalysis is gaslighting? The moment we give a desire, we give a restriction. That's they they become birthed at once, and in that we actually create uh, the consequence of Oedipus. The treatment itself is a product of Oedipalization and a counter-effect of the treatment that reinforces it. This section is amazing. I think it's another one of those ones we really need to highlight for people coming in as well, because they just kind of plainly lay out there when they say that we don't disagree that these things exist, but we simply deny that they are productions of the unconscious. You know, and they kind of they expand a bit more, but I think it's a great statement of purpose <laughs> buried in the text. 
No, and it's, it's it really helps uh, put a lot of the questions I had earlier, and I'm sure a lot of us did, because they're, they're literally talking about, look, all of these things are ultimately caused by desiring machines, desiring machines that are caused by moments of repression. And these, rep these moments of repression are the things that are taught to us in that edible moment when we're told we can't fuck our mom. Uh, means we obviously want to fuck our mom. We decide those things exist at the same time. Uh, and they become self-replicating in in their own sense rather than in a sort of underlying unconscious drive. And one of the things I think here is that's important is the fact that, you know, they have the idea that uh, the unconscious is something that never becomes conscious. And so if if you say that uh, something it is an unconscious effect that you can be conscious of, then that is, that's really a, a false effect. It's not really the unconscious. And, uh, and, you know, I think that's important because it's not just a critique of Freud, it's a critique of Jung as well. Jung has got all kinds of things that he calls the unconscious that are things that people are conscious of. Shall we continue to the next paragraph? Yeah, why don't you uh, give it a read? Sorry, I'm just finding my place again. Um, this is the last one, yeah? In the last paragraph, in reality. In reality, the problem has nothing to do with pre-edible stages that would still revolve around an edible axis, but rather with the existence and the nature of an anedible sexuality, an anedible heterosexuality and homosexuality, an anedible castration. The breaks flows of desiring production do not let themselves be projected onto a mythical locale. The signs of desire do not let themselves be extrapolated from a signifier. Transsexuality does not let any qualitative opposition between a local and nonspecific heterosexuality and a local and nonspecific homosexuality arise. Everywhere in this reversion, the innocence of flowers instead of the guilt of conversion. But rather than ensuring or tending to ensure the reversion of the entire unconscious according to an, the anedible form and within the anedible content of desiring production, analytic theory and practice never cease to promote the conversion of the unconscious to Oedipus, form and content. We shall see in effect what psychoanalysis calls resolving Oedipus. This conversion is therefore promoted by psychoanalysis, first of all, by making a global and specific use of the connective synthesis, syntheses. This use can be defined as transcendent and implies a first paralogism in the psychoanalytic process. For a simple reason, we again make use of Kantian terminology. In what he termed the critical revolution, Kant intended to discover criteria imminent to understanding so as to distinguish the legitimate and the illegitimate uses of the, synthes uses of the syntheses of the consciousness. In the name of transcendental philosophy, imminence of criteria, he therefore denounced the transcendent use of syntheses such as appeared in metaphysics. In like fashion, we are compelled to say that psychoanalysis has its metaphysics, its name is Oedipus, and that a revolution, this time materialist, can proceed only by way of a critique of Oedipus by denouncing the illegitimate use of the syntheses of the unconscious as found in Oedipal psychoanalysis so as to rediscover a transcendental unconscious defined by the imminence of its criteria and a corresponding practice that we shall call schizoanalysis. I think I lost the verb there somewhere. <laughs> so there's quite a lot going on in that final paragraph. Yeah, I think we're reduced to silence on that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot. I think that line about uh, 
Oedipus as the metaphysics of psychoanalysis. That, that could be seen as drawing parallel on Heidegger, on ontotheology to some degree, right? At least that's it. Yeah, I think that's a good point. No, I think I, I, I'm, I'm unfamiliar enough with Heidegger that I, I would love to actually make sure we follow up on that at some point tomorrow uh, in our review session, because it, if, if both you and Kent say the same thing, I'm going to be like, I want to know more about that. Um, but so for me, the, the line that I think I liked, that, that kind of caught me the most, and I think we should just take a few moments, we got a few minutes, uh, to go over kind of each of us a moment that we liked. But for me, it's really saying that what we're talking about here is bringing Oedipus away from the unconscious uh, and much more into the materialist realm and saying, no, there is, these things exist, they are real, the lack is real, all of these things are real and they're all around us ultimately instead of this sort of unconscious thing that is driving us in a pre-Oedipal state, uh, that there are materialist realities to all of these things. It seems to be their sort of point that I'm, I'm taking from this. Well, and similarly to, you know, maybe to, you know, make more possibly problematic comparisons, but when they earlier said we, we can't determine necessarily the origin or essence of this thing, but we can trace its effects and how it's played out. You know, it gives me a very sort of Foucauldian genealogy, you know, kind of feel of we can, by materialist, you know, I think by this point, we, we all know they don't just mean some kind of bland, you know, uh, rationalist Marxist position or something. They mean the, the playing out of these effects in the world as we perceive them over time in history, in the socius and all these things. Um, so, yeah, I, I do like that formulation. But anyway, that was just a thought. <laughs> no, it's it's a good one. It's the, the last final sentence. I'm with you, Rentorius. It's a, that a revolution, this time materialist, can proceed only by way of a critique of Oedipus, by denouncing the illegitimate use of the synthesis of the unconscious as found in Oedipal psychoanalysis, so as to rediscover a transcendental unconscious, defined by the eminence of its criteria and a corresponding practice we will call schizoanalysis, is basically, I think, a perfect lead-in to what comes to be the rest of this chapter as they start defining out how schizoanalysis actually works from a clinical perspective. Uh, so it's a, it's a really, really, there's so much in this fucking chapter. Tomorrow's review section is going to be uh, long. <laughs> I have a few. Yeah. The, the one that caught my attention was the break flows of desiring production do not let themselves be projected onto the mythical locale. The signs of desire do not let themselves be extrapolated from the signifier. So I mean, I mean, I just, I just think that the, um, you know, what's, what's happening in general here is that they're um, trying to see how the uh, the level of the desiring machines gets um, extrapolated up to this molar level, and then used by the patriarchal system in terms of edipalization to create a fundamental organization of society. But that's one of the basic points of Dolores on this. Um, you can take, for example, a city. Uh, you can have the, you know, the mythical narrative of a city and they organize their services, the infrastructure to serve the function that are uh, into the metaphysics of it. But 
from you know the walker's point of view from the materialist aspect uh, the, the person walks in the city you can criticize every attempt at producing the city according to a metaphysics so that's the whole reversal so um the the way Deleuze works into most of his work is like that it's to actually take um a discourse that is put like as a template on society or you know any level and try to see it um from a localized perspective so it it allows to see the structure how it is but also how it functions but how it does not function as well i love that image that's a great it makes me think of benjamin the flaneur stuff yeah well i've used this for my dissertation because i'm analyzing uh, the city from a disability perspective so i'm using this structure of thought to actually articulate my criticism of the city and i would like to actually end uh, this conversation on that i it's a really good visual and I'm, I'm actually, I'll agree with Varun, uh, Roger, we need to get you to run a session or two. Speaking of, uh, tomorrow at around the same time, uh, noonish LA time, PST, uh, I think that's 1900 uh, GMT, uh, we are gonna be doing our review session that goes over this entire section, generally with more of a fine tooth comb, not a direct reading, but much more trying to go over all the concepts to make sure everyone gets them. Uh, if you have questions for that section, do not hesitate to toss them into the <coughs> uh, uh, discussion chat live, the review and analysis uh, section, or uh, really uh, anywhere on here, and we will uh, make sure that we take those into account tomorrow. With that, I think I'm going to go ahead and uh, close this out as uh, we all have things to get to, and this has been a lovely two hours. Thank all of you for joining us.